I would say I'm realistic with an optimistic twinge to it. Because fundamentally, I'm a cautious optimist. I tend not to be pessimistic, but I tend to be realistic about the foibles of our society and of our human nature. So I think we're going to have outbreaks after this outbreak. I think we need to do things in a concerted way to get us through this challenge. Hello, Pulse Check listeners. This is Dan Diamond, and welcome to our special Pulse Check series on the coronavirus outbreak and the nation's response. Today, I'm in conversation with a man who is at the center of that response, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. To put it another way, he's the nation's top infectious disease expert. You've probably seen him in White House briefings or on TV as the most trusted voice on where we stand with coronavirus. You may also have heard him discuss his long-standing efforts to fight other diseases like HIV and Ebola, including on Politico's Pulse Check podcast before. Dr. Fauci and I spoke on Wednesday afternoon, where we discussed the state of the outbreak, the push for a vaccine, what it's like to be him in this surreal moment, and even a little bit about basketball, too. Here's that conversation. Dr. Tony Fauci, welcome back to Politico Pulse Check. Good to be with you, Dan. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're now months into this massively disruptive pandemic. It may continue to reshape America for perhaps years to come. Can you put this crisis into historical perspective? Yeah, the historical perspective, Dan, is is pretty clear. We've had outbreaks uh, of different diseases over, you know, decades and decades. When you're talking about a respiratory infection that involves the entire planet, this is the most challenging and most difficult public health crisis that we have faced in the last 102 years since the global pandemic of 1918. Obviously, Outbreaks of different type, like HIV AIDS, which is still raging as a pandemic, should not be underestimated in its impact, but it has been over a 39-year period. The death and suffering has been extraordinary, but it has been over a very long period of time. What we have here is an explosive challenge that essentially thrust itself upon us in a matter of a couple of months, and has in many respects gripped the world like nothing else we've experienced historically, to your question and point, over the last 102 years since 1918. You spent years publicly warning about the possibility of a pandemic, including just days before the Trump administration took office. Is COVID-19 the virus that you feel like you were bracing for, or are there even scarier viruses, ones that would would be more dangerous, that are still lurking? Well, Dan, I think you have to assume that there are more viruses that are still lurking, because we know historically we've had outbreaks uh, long before I've been around, uh, even before recorded history. Uh, We know that we've been outbreaks recently. We're in the middle of an outbreak now. And there's no doubt that we're going to have outbreaks in the future. I often get asked 
is there anything very special about this outbreak? And as you do recall, I did predict this type of thing before the transition of the administration because I was giving talks at the end saying that I had advised five presidents up to that point and that I'm obviously still in my job and I likely, I wasn't sure, might have the opportunity to, to uh, advise a sixth president. And in my end of the talk, and this was a talk I did months, months, months before the new administration, I, I said, whoever the next president is going to be. And then when the president was elected, I showed a picture of President Trump, or soon to be President Trump after the election. And I said, what's next and what will this man face? The answer was a big question mark on the slide. I have no idea. Now, unfortunately for everyone involved, what did emerge was what I had often been describing as the worst case scenario or my worst nightmare, because we had seen infections that had a high degree of mortality, but did not spread very well. That was the original SARS in 2002, which public health measures very successfully contained it. Ebola, which has a great degree of mortality, but doesn't spread in the general public unless you have close contact. And then we had the 2009 pandemic swine flu, which spread very, very well, but was a wimpy virus in that it didn't kill very many people. So my concern was that virus that would jump species, be respiratory born, and would have two characteristics that when they come together are very problematic. And that is one that is very efficiently transmitted from human to human and not wimping along, but actually spreading rapidly in the community. And two, that it has a significant degree of morbidity and mortality, at least for some subset of the population. And that's exactly what this is. It's spectacular capability in spreading from human to human. And depending upon who you are, if you're an elderly person or somebody with underlying conditions, it has a significant degree of morbidity and mortality. Whereas fortunately, younger people do not have nearly the risk of going on to have serious disease, which can turn out to be a blessing because it actually protects a certain proportion of the population, but can also be misleading because the people who don't get symptoms, who think that they are in a vacuum and it doesn't make any difference if they get infected, are inadvertently and innocently driving the outbreak. One more quick question setting the table. We are now at a point where more than 150,000 Americans have died. The new daily confirmed cases of coronavirus are roughly 50,000, if not higher, per day. How much worse is it going to get? You know, that's going to be up to us, Dan. And, and I think I like the way you frame the question because it gives us the opportunity to speak to the country about the fact that we can suppress this with a total concerted effort of some five or six fundamental things, even before we get a vaccine. Now, obviously, we're working hard on a vaccine. I'm cautiously optimistic we'll have one. We could talk about that in a minute. But for now, just talking about the public 
health measures. If you do them, we know from history, you can turn around the outbreak and you could do that successfully. Universal wearing of masks, physical distancing, six feet or more. Avoid crowds, outdoor better than indoor. Stay away from bars if you possibly can, and in some places even have authorities close it. That's a hotbed of transmission and maintain hand hygiene. As simple as those things are, we know that if you implement them, they will prevent the surging and bring down the surging that's already occurred. Now, the reason that's important, that would not require shutting down again. There seems to be a misperception that either you shut down completely and damage a lot of things, mental health, the economy, all kinds of things, or let it rip and do whatever you want. There's a stepwise fashion that you can open up the economy successfully. You don't have to lock down again, but everybody has got to be on board for doing these five or six fundamental public health measures. And I've, we've got to keep getting that message across because younger people, understandably and innocently, they feel that they're invulnerable. And so they say, you know, it doesn't make much difference if I get infected. I'm in my own little vacuum, my own little cocoon. You're not, because if you get infected, it is likely that you're going to infect someone else who might infect someone else who then have a very serious consequence. So we've all got to pull together. Which would annoy you more, a photo of people crowded together at a bar or a photo of people wearing masks, but the masks all have those air filters in them, so they're not actually containing the breath. <laughs> I think both, Dan. I think what I would like to see, and again, I don't want to seem preachy, but it's so important that people understand nobody's blaming anybody. But if you want to put out the dynamics of the outbreak, you can't have weak links in the chain. In other words, if everybody's pulling to contain it and you have one demographic group that because they incorrectly think that by their getting infected, it doesn't make any difference because it's not going to impact anybody, that's incorrect because if you get infected, you're propagating the outbreak. President Trump posted photos from Tuesday's coronavirus task force meeting. I was looking very closely at the people ringing the president's desk. Health Secretary Alex Azar, CDC Director Robert Redfield, Advisor Kellyanne Conway. They're all political appointees of the president. And then there was you, a career civil servant who's advised a half dozen presidents. As you and I know, doctor, it's much harder to get rid of a career civil servant than a political appointee. Is there any specific advice that you feel like you've been able to offer that would have been harder for your political uh, counterparts to say? I don't think so. I mean, I think that obviously when you're trying to give public health advice, it often is bad news because when you're in a difficult situation, you've got to deliver bad news. And sometimes, I'm not, and no one in particular, sometimes people 
in a political situation might have a hesitancy to deliver cold, bad news. And that's the reason why, to their credit, the White House has in the room public health officials like me, like Bob Redfield, like Brett Girard, and like Deb Burks, because we are, and, and Steve Hahn. I mean, some of them are, are, are political appointees, but fundamentally well, they're, they're good public health people. I think. Yeah, except me, except me, right, right, exactly. The president and some White House officials have said that you, doctor, were too optimistic about the virus back in January and February, that according to President Trump, he told Fox News last month that, quote, you said, this will pass, don't worry about it, this will pass. Did you ever say that to the president? Uh, I said that publicly, but you left out half of a very important sentence, Dan. It was at a time that I think we either had one case or maybe no cases. It was in January. I said, at the present time, because people were asking me, we have one case in the country. Should we lock down and close down the country? You know, Dan, that if I had said, we need to lock down the country now, the country would have looked at me like I'm crazy. So I said, at, and here's the exact words, go check them. <laughs> I said, at the present time, we don't need to do anything different. And then those who try to discredit me left out comma. However, this could change and it could change rapidly. So we need to be prepared because this could turn out to be very serious. So the people that wanted to say back then, I said, don't worry about it, didn't give the public the rest of my sentence. Some of the people who have tried to discredit you are in the White House. They have attacked your claims. Peter Navarro, for instance. Right. Well, you know, talking about that, Dan, is is a distraction. No, it is. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, you talk about it is what it is. This is what it is. That's what he did. I don't want to waste any time arguing with things that are not scientific. So I want to focus like a laser beam on what I need to do. Well, let's talk about something that is time sensitive, and that is coronavirus test turnaround. My dad's a doctor. He recently waited for his results of testing for eight days. I have a friend who waited 12 days recently. It's effectively worthless for fighting the virus. You said in an interview with Bloomberg on Wednesday morning, quote, we need to do better. No excuses. So why haven't we shifted to, say, rapid antigen tests that may be less accurate, but are cheap and widely distributed? To be more specific, Harvard's Ashish Jha laid this out recently in a Time magazine piece. Uh, He wrote, quote, imagine spitting on a special strip of paper every morning and being told two minutes later whether you were positive for COVID-19. That sounds pretty good. So why not do that? You know... Dan, it is very difficult. Uh, It's been this way from the very beginning of the issue of defending things that have to do with testing when you're given an example like you just gave me about waiting five to seven days. You know, I would be non-credible and I wouldn't be true to myself if I say, oh, that's okay. It's not okay, period. (laughs) And we need to do better. And I wish we had done better. But 
you know, I can say on the positive side of things that we are doing much, much better now. And if you, uh, Brett Gerard, I spoke to him about it, uh, you know, within the last 24 hours, the percentage of tests that come back now within 24 to 48 hours is the vast majority of them. There are examples, just like the one you gave, of them coming back five to seven days later. And Admiral Giraud and I both agree that's not acceptable and we've got to do better than that. It's unfortunately, we've not. What's happened is that the surging of cases that we've had have put an extra demand on the backlog of cases, which in the backlog of tests, which is one of the reasons why we're still seeing that delay, which you're right. When you're doing contact tracing, a delay like that obviates the reason for why you're doing it. Yes or no, is there any plan to roll out rapid testing like this sort of yes. described? There is. Yes, okay. yes, there is absolutely, I can tell you that. Any timing on that? We're talking about hopefully getting, you know, many, many millions of more tests that can be done rapidly within the next month or so, September. But then, Dan, I have to be true to myself and true to you. I can't guarantee that because that's not what I do. So the people who are responsible for that are telling us that we're going to get better and better as the months go by. And hopefully we'll have the kind of things you're talking about reasonably soon. The Trump administration in the spring delegated much of the testing response to the states. There was a recent report in Vanity Fair that suggested political considerations may have been a factor because states that had bad outbreaks, like New York and Washington, were led by Democrats. And according to this report, the White House could shift blame for those bad outbreaks. Now, you've been on the coronavirus task force since the beginning. Did you see any hint of political motive behind that lack of testing plan? No. I have to tell you again, just as I'm honest with other things, I have never heard anything even resembling that. I've never heard that. And I've been at every single task force meeting. I haven't missed a single one. Thinking instead about a vaccine, Moderna, which has never brought a vaccine to market using a technology that's never produced a licensed vaccine, it's gotten more than $900 million from the federal government in recent weeks. Your team has worked with this company. You're placing a big bet on Moderna. Why rely so much on a company and technology that remains largely unproven on vaccines? Yeah, there are some advantages to that. And that was how quickly they could get off the ground, get the sequence, stick it into a vaccine and do a phase one trial. And in fact, Dan, the proof of the pudding is that we've done it rapidly without sacrificing safety and without compromising scientific integrity. But one of the things that you left out, and I know you didn't do it deliberately. <laughs> well, we only have so I, much time. I know. <laughs> there are many other candidates also in the yeah, pipeline. Okay, no, no, that's it. In other words, the federal government has fingerprints directly or indirectly on at least six of those. We are collaborating with, allowing our clinical trials group. Barter is giving hundreds of millions of dollars to multiple candidates. We're not putting our eggs in that one basket. That's for sure. Beyond just developing the vaccine, there's a lot more to rolling one out. We'll need billions of pharmaceutical-grade glass vials, billions of rubber stoppers, packaging, places to store uh, and refrigerate doses. The scope of the undertaking is massive. 
when you're scaling this vaccine to the public. And some people are worried that it's not going to be possible on the scale that we need it to be. What would you say right. to those concerns, doctor? Well, that, Dan, is exactly the reason why with Operation Warp Speed, one of the two people that were brought in, one was Monsef Salawi, who has extensive decades of experience in the pharmaceutical world, and the other is General Gustav Perna, who is a four-star general in the army, whose job is the kind of logistics of supply chain that you're talking about. So it's a collaboration, Operation Warp Speed, between HHS with Secretary Alex Azar, as well as the Secretary of the Department of Defense, uh, Mark Exper. So we have two people with two major departments in the federal government having individuals who are leading this, and one of them is the supply chain that you're talking about. Yeah, so to underline the point, you think that military health collaboration is going to deliver the production we need. Yeah, I, I, the purpose of getting someone of the experience and talent of General Perna was precisely to assure that we can get done what you're suggesting. And obviously, you have Alex Azar, who's the secretary of HHS, who has all of the assets of the Department of Health and Human Services involved, FDA, CDC, CMS, NIH, all of us. When the vaccine comes, doctor, would you prefer to be first in line to get it, 200th in line, 1 millionth? You know, um, when the vaccine becomes available after a 30,000 person or more placebo-controlled randomized trial, and it's shown to be safe and effective, I would get it any time within the time frame of the people who prioritize it according to ethical principles. In other words, there may be people who need it more than I do, and I would prefer they get it if they need it. I would like to get it as soon as the prioritization by ethical considerations says I can do it. If they say, you know, there's no secret. Before I took this job, Dan, everybody looked at me and says, hey, you know, pretty young looking guy. Now I'm the elderly Dr. Fauci. I can't escape it. So I'm in the group that's at a high risk. So I would get that vaccine as quickly as I possibly can. Answered like a doctor and career civil servant, mindful of right. ethics rules. Right. I wanted to get your opinion on a debate that I've had with friends in health policy, whether this is a moment of optimism or pessimism for humanity. And, and just to explain, we're seeing massive strides in the pace of vaccine development or the use of telehealth and we're connected virtually. Like those are all optimistic things. But we've also seen a horrible virus resurge in predictable ways. There's rampant misinformation, including about you, run wild on the internet. When you look at this moment, doctor, are you more optimistic or pessimistic for humanity? I would say I'm realistic with an optimistic twinge to it, because fundamentally, I'm a cautious optimist. I tend not to be pessimistic, but I tend to be realistic about the foibles of our society and of our human nature. So I think we're going to have outbreaks after this outbreak. I think we need to do things in a concerted way to get us through this challenge. I believe we will get through this, Dan, and I believe we can do it without destroying the economy and all 
the secondary negative things that come with that. There are other health issues that emerge when you do a shutdown. So I think we can get through this without having to revert back to a shutdown. If only people do uniformly the things that I've mentioned to you. Because when you have a weak link, then the whole system is unsuccessful. Well, doctor, to push on that, we know what works to stop the spread of this virus. You spent decades trying to get Americans ready for this moment. It finally arrived, and our outbreak is so much worse than, say, Western Europe. How can you possibly be optimistic at all when you look at where we are versus where we could have been? I am because I think, I don't think, I have faith in the American spirit, even though the diversity of the manifestations gets some people to not take it seriously. So I want to keep delivering the message. And that's the way I I hate to sound preachy because it sounds like there's blame. There's no blame here. I think the people that are inadvertently driving the outbreak are doing it innocently because they think that what they're doing has no effect on others, when in fact it does. It really does because even though you don't get any symptoms, you might be propagating the outbreak without anybody know it. And you know, I use that, and, and I'll say it again, and it'll take me less than 30 seconds because I think it's important. You know, you learn a lot of lessons from your children, and one of my children went to college and was on the varsity rowing team. Ro- rowing I think team. I know where this is going, and it's you have to all row together. But it's the truth. You know, you don't fully realize that until I didn't know anything about crew. I'm a baseball, basketball guy. So I went to my daughter's. She was the captain of the team, so I I really wanted to see her row. So I went to the rowing, and the thing I learned, that when you have an eight-person boat, if you want to win the race, everybody's got to be rowing with everything they have. You need one person who, by accident, they call it catching a crab, where the, the, the row goes up and splashes, or they decide they don't want to row in accordance with the coxswain. You're going to lose the race. So if you have one component of the multifaceted way to get an outbreak under control, and that one component isn't rowing with the group, you can say whatever you want to say. You're not going to get that curve down. If I walk into a small coffee shop and I see people not wearing their masks, should I encourage those people to wear their masks? Uh, You know, the answer is yes, if you do it in a respectful way. If you start making it a confrontation, that's not helpful. So you appeal to the better angels and people to try and explain to them why it's important to do that. You don't say, you stupid idiot, why don't you have a mask on? Because that's only going to push them away. I think people who know me know that's my style uh, to call them (laughs) stupid idiots. Conspiracy theorists... Who, who have not been so respectful, they have spread accusations about you, Dr. Fauci, that you made the coronavirus. Yes. This isn't just an online theory. A network called Sinclair was set to air that claim across nearly 200 TV stations last month. The segment ultimately got spiked. I've seen even crazier conspiracies circulating involving your work with people like Bill Gates and U2 frontman Bono. I should hasten to underline, there is no evidence for any of these things. But what is it like to have so much misinformation spread about you? Well, obviously, it's not pleasant, Dan, but the thing that I have learned in this very divisive, somewhat surreal experience 
that we're dealing with, that there are things on both sides of this. And the one thing that I've been able to do successfully is to focus like a laser on what my job is, is to end this epidemic, to end this pandemic. And there are multiple aspects that are not real. If you get distracted by what's not real, then you're going to not do your job. So on the one hand, you know, you have the baseball cards and, you know, uh, the, the, the bobbleheads and all that. I'm, I'm holding up what's called a Fauci pouchy, a drink that a neighborhood bar sells. Exactly. I don't pay any attention to that. Never, ever even let it go near going to your head. On the other hand, I don't pay attention to that crazy nonsense on the other side. There's one thing about that nonsense that I do object to, and that is the effect that it has on my family. Because when you get death threats that require you having security protection all the time, and when they start hassling your children on the phone and at their job and interfering with their lives, that pisses me off, I must say. But other than that, I try and focus on what I really need to do is to address this pandemic. And I'm sorry for your experience there, doctor. And I remember reporting a few months ago that you did get a security detail. But I do want to challenge you on one piece of these conspiracy theories and that some Americans may end up believing them. And if you are going to be America's top spokesperson on coronavirus, there's a poll out today from Politico. You're effectively the most trusted voice on endorsing vaccines. Do you worry about the misinformation eating into your role and hurting yeah. the ability of Americans to trust you? Yeah. I think that that is a possibility, but I think that the people, I don't know what you want to call them, the dark web or the, I mean, there's, I don't know what their name is. I think those people are going to be against me no matter what. I think the people who are reasonable people who know that those types of attacks, who have any knowledge of my 40-plus years track record and my 36 years doing that, are not going to believe it. Uh, so I just got to assume that reasonable people are going to believe that that is just nonsense. Since we're, we're running out of time, I wanted to very quickly do a lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers on you personally. I don't know the next time I'll be able to get you in front of a camera. I'm, I'm curious, doctor, you're playing a central role fighting this pandemic. You're also 79 years old, as you alluded to earlier. Is there a plan if you get sick? If there are a plan if I get sick, I mean, I hope I recover. I'm in a high-risk group. I have people immediately around me, almost all of which I have trained that are really, really good. I would imagine that they would appoint another director of the institute and uh, they will do that with a national search. So if I get sick and I die, God forbid, before I would like to, <laughs> uh, I will be replaced, I'm sure, by a very competent person. They wouldn't have the experience that I have. So I want to stay healthy for a number of reasons. One, I just like being alive and well. And number two, I do have a very deep commitment to ending this pandemic. And I should say, you went to a darker place than I'm in. I just meant if you were sick for a couple of weeks and someone had to step in. <laughs> oh, sick for a couple of weeks. So, yeah, we, we got really good people here. Don't worry about that. How, how are you preserving your mental health in this moment? I've seen a variety of answers where sometimes it sounds like you're running or power walking or swimming. Is there something you're doing to escape? It's just that. I mean, I have an extraordinarily supportive wife of 
of 36 years, who is just, um, you know, wonderful with me and, and can gauge my mood and my need to take care of myself. If it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't sleep or wouldn't drink or eat. And she just keeps reminding me to do that. But just being with her and Zooming with my children and going for long walks in the woods, to me, is what I do. That's the only thing I can do, Dan. I mean, I, I can't, I have to be honest with you, I work 18 hours a day, so I don't have a, a lot of time for fun things. That's got to be on hold right now. One last question. You mentioned being a baseball, basketball guy. You threw out the first pitch of the baseball season. That pitch got some attention. Uh, have you been able to watch the NBA's return at all? You know, I actually, unfortunately, have not. And I, and I love sports. I just have not been able to watch any sports on TV because when I get back home at night at a time when I used to love sitting back and watching a college basketball game or, or during the summer, I love baseball. I, I can't do it because I come back from whatever I'm doing and I have a couple of hundred emails that I have to answer. It isn't like... You got to let them wait till tomorrow. You got to answer them tonight. And that takes me into the middle of the night. So, well, we will let you get back to answering your emails after answering all of these questions. Dr. Fauci, <laughs> thanks so much for your time and your public service. Uh, Dan, it, I mean this sincerely. It's always good to be with you. I, I think you're a really terrific reporter. Thank you very much. It's very kind. Thanks so much. All right, that is our show for this week. I'm Dan Diamond, and my thanks to Dr. Anthony Fauci for joining me and David Awad in his office for setting up the conversation. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Jenny Ament is our senior producer, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. Subscribe to Politico Pulse Check wherever you're listening, and you can help us by leaving a rating or review. That helps new listeners find the show, especially when it's a five-star rating or if it's a review with comments about what you heard. You can follow Politico's coverage of the coronavirus in our Politico nightly newsletter every evening, or in Politico's Pulse newsletter in the morning, which I co-author and tease up the day to come. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, and we'll be back again with you next week.